Amen. In the beginning, that's where we're starting this morning, in this new year, in the beginning. That's, I'm excited about uh, where we're headed in this journey through the book of Genesis. I'm excited about this journey and pray that you are excited as well because Genesis is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It sets the stage for the rest of Scripture. And, and one of my goals, one of my goals in this series is to help us understand how it's all connected, how these great stories that we find in Genesis are our stories. We must own them. I want us to understand that the Bible, although made up of 66 books, is overall just one story. It is the story of God and God's rescue plan and salvation for us. The Bible is the story of God's rescue plan for humanity and for all of creation. It is the story of how God has ransomed us from slavery to sin and death and given us new life. This is the grand story of the Bible. Church, this is your story. I hope you love it. I hope you embrace it. I, and as we approach this text, I hope you truly see it as your story. These are your ancestors. These are your people. These are our people. This is your God. And I hope we're not ashamed or afraid of it. But what I found is that too many of you don't understand this story. And worse, you don't understand how it applies to you today. I hope that we can help connect the dots. Connect the dots of this ancient story to the dots of your life today. That's our goal during this series. Amen? So let's dive right in. Now this is going to require some work on your part. Yeah, it's a new year. we got to get to work. And so you can't just sit back and absorb. You have to be proactive in your spiritual walk and in, uh, in the life of the church and learn to apply this story to your world. So in your bulletin, there's actually space to take notes. If you would like to take notes, this might be one of those sermons that you want to take notes. Uh, there might be things you want to look up later on your own time and study, and I hope that you will. Because part of the struggle with the Old Testament, and Genesis in particular, is that it happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is an ancient story with people and places that we are not familiar with and we don't understand. In one sense, the peoples and cultures of Genesis, they, they are truly vastly different than our culture. It is a different time and period. And this can be a barrier for our understanding. But hopefully as we go through these stories, we'll learn some more about the peoples and the cultures uh, to help us grasp more fully the one story of God's redemption for us and his ransom for creation. So I want us to get a landscape uh, of Genesis. And to do that, we're going to focus on several of the major characters of the story. It is my hope that we can remember these characters and their order so that we can better connect the dots of the whole story. So I've placed up here these reminders, these helpers for you. They'll be up here all month as we tell this story. So Genesis starts with creation and Adam and Eve. And from there, the next major player is Noah. 
And from Noah, we have Abraham. From Abraham, we have Isaac. And then Jacob and Joseph. Six, I want you to memorize them in their proper order. However you need to do to study it, to memorize it. Because I believe that if you memorize these these major players in Genesis and their order, then hopefully that can help you connect the dots of who they are, of when they came, and what their story has to say for our story as well. And as we talk about Genesis, I also want us to understand kind of how it's divided. Uh, And... In Genesis, we have two major sections. The first section is Genesis 1 through 11, and that encompasses creation and Noah. And then Genesis 12 through 50, the next major section is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so these are the two major divisions of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, creation and Noah, we often call prehistory. These stories are the most ancient stories of the Bible. They're so old, we can't properly date them. We don't know when they happened. Now, they talk about times and, and numbers and, and dates and stuff, but, but they're so old, we're not real sure. It's with uh, chapter 12, with Abraham, that we come to datable history. When we can place Abraham in a time and space from Abraham on. But these stories are our stories and I want us to remember that. And so this morning, as we look at this great story from Genesis, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, to creation. We're going to start with that first dot over there, creation, Adam and Eve. I love this story. It is absolutely amazing to me. Genesis chapter 1 is the introduction to the rest of the Bible. It is like the prelude uh, to the rest of Genesis, to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and to our entire Bible. It is the prelude, the introduction, the prologue. And it is critical for our understanding of who God is and who we are. Did you hear that? Knowing this story and its purpose is critical for our understanding of who God is and who we are. Genesis chapter 1. It introduces us to the grand story of God's intent and purpose for creation. But in our Bibles, you might know this, we actually have two creation stories. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 4 is the first creation story. And you can see that right there. And then our second creation story starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4b through 25. Why do we have two creation stories? It's a good question. I don't know. But that's the way it's designed. We have been given two creation stories. But their focus is different. And if you've read these, maybe, maybe you've caught this. The first creation story in Genesis 1, it's kind of like a grand narrative. It is an introduction. It, it shows you the whole big picture, a grand overview of the purpose of creation. It is like the prelude to the rest of the Bible. And its focus is on God and kind of his transcendence, how great he is. The second creation story complements the first. They, they complement each other, but its focus is a little different. In our second creation story, God is given more human characteristics as he creates the world and humanity and a garden, the Garden of Eden. These stories, as I said, they complement each other and they connect to each other. But, but today I want us to focus on this first 
creation story. As I said before, it functions like a prelude to Genesis and the entire Bible. Just like in this service, Cameron plays a, a prelude every Sunday morning. Do you know what the purpose of a prelude is? You know what the purpose? Maybe you don't. The purpose of a prelude is to prepare us for what is to come. To get us in the right frame of mind. To begin to help us to sense the Almighty. To transform our mentality and our space. Unfortunately, too often we ignore the prelude. It's just kind of dinner music, as it were, or whatever. But it's, it's not that. It's designed to take us someplace. It is important. We don't see it as vital sometimes, and, and that's a shame, because Genesis 1 is vital. These are the first words out of our Bible. That's important. And this cre- creation story has an absolutely brilliant structure and purpose. And I want you to see this. Again, the Bible isn't just a bunch of mixed up stories. It is one grand story going someplace. And it is beautifully structured with purpose and passion. But as we approach this creation story, we must take a moment and step back and look at some of the questions that are no doubt on many of your minds when we approach these creation stories. Story, uh, questions like this. Is the story real or myth? What about dinosaurs? <laughs> what about evolution? Was the world really created in seven days? Now, these are good questions, but sadly, I believe we ask them for the wrong reasons because these questions have at their core the question of how. How did the world come about? How did it happen? But these stories are not concerned about how. What is their concern? Why? Why did God create? That was their intent, not how, but why? But as humanity over the centuries, as we've understood more and more about science, we have seen that science in the story of creation in Genesis 1 and and 2, sometimes we feel like they don't line up. And we have come up with several theories to address just that. And I'm indebted to Sandra Richter for an outline of these theories. And all of these theories have been developed because we're trying to answer the question, how? But the story is about why. So here's the first theory. Of, of, there's others, of course, but these are the major theories that humanity has come up with when we talk about these creation stories, in Genesis 1 especially. The first is the gap theory. Uh, the gap theory says this. It is saying that between the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1, 1, in verse 1 and verse 2, there is a gap of time. And in this gap of time is when Satan and his angels fell from heaven and came to earth and was thrown down to earth. In this gap was when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Part of the problem, in my opinion, with this theory is that it inserts a gap of time where the author did not insert a gap of time. And I don't think the author intended for there to be a gap right there between Genesis chapter 1-1 and verse 2. But that's the gap theory. That's one theory that we've come up with to answer the how. The second theory is the geological era theory. Now this theory basically says that each day of Genesis 1 is actually six different eras which are undefined in length. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 
that to God a day is like a thousand years. We've read that before. So this theory doesn't limit the day to an actual 24-hour period. Now, I like this theory, and it does address the issue of time and fossil records and geology and all those other things from science. But neither the gap theory nor the geological error theory address the apparent contradictions that seem to appear between the two creation stories. Do you know there are contradictions between the two creation stories? How did they let that in the Bible? Do you think that the Jews knew that there were contradictions between the two creation stories? Yes. In the first story, Genesis 1, vegetation is created first and then humanity. In the second story, it seems like humanity is created first and then vegetation. Which one's is right? It doesn't matter. See, because the biggest problem with these theories, in my opinion, is they don't address the purpose the author had with these stories. We are asking questions of this text that the author is not addressing. It's like this. Have you ever been telling a story to someone and they keep interrupting you and asking questions that have no relevance to what you're trying to say? Has that ever happened to you? And you're like, wait, wait, stop. That's beside the point. That doesn't matter. That's kind of the way we have approached Genesis chapter 1. Again, uh, Sandra Richter gives a great example of this in her book, The Epic of Eden. I would encourage you to read it. It is a fantastic book. And, it, and he says this. Imagine if you were to get out your car's owner's manual and try to ask of your car's owner's manual where your winter clothes are stored. Not very helpful, is it? Right? You might read it. You might be reading in the manual and it says somewhere uh, the hood may be released by releasing lever X. And you might be thinking, okay, my hooded sweater, I got to find the lever to find out where the, my hood is stored. It wasn't written for that purpose. You might spend the rest of your life trying to figure out where your hooded sweater is stored, but scratching your head which lever you're supposed to be pulling to find it. It's similar to the question, when were the dinosaurs created? When they approached Genesis chapter 1. It wasn't written to answer that question. It wasn't written to answer that question. Again, we have to look at the purpose and the intent of the author. Was he trying to describe evolution and where dinosaurs came from? No. Was he trying to tell us the age of the earth? No. We need to ask the agenda of the author, not impose our agenda on it. Otherwise, we run the risk of being very, very confused and not taking the story seriously. Now, there's a third theory, the the literal 24-hour day theory. Now, this is the theory that's been around the longest because as the text says, There were seven days and seven, in each of those days, something happened. Now, now there are pros and cons to this theory, and I don't really want to get into the many details about it, but I always ask the question, hear me, could God have created the world in six days? And for me, the answer is absolutely yes. Could God have created the world in six seconds? And the answer is absolutely yes. Could God... Snap his fingers and it all be in existence. Absolutely. I don't doubt that at all. But again, I go back to the intent of the author in composing six 24-hour day cycles. 
Why did he design the text this way? What was his intent? And again, I'll tip my hand. I believe Moses wrote this story down for us. Because for me, the structure of this story, Genesis chapter 1, if you read it through, it is written more like prose or poetry with its symmetry and its beauty and its purpose and its going somewhere with its repeated phrases of, and God saw that it was good and there was evening and morning a next day. Everything has a place and a purpose. It is structured. Now, does that mean it didn't happen, that it is a made-up story? And my answer is no, an emphatic no. I believe God did indeed create the heavens and the earth, but this story is going somewhere beyond a literal retelling of science. If it were a science manual, it would be written very differently and it would be a lot thicker than this. It is explaining the impossible. And and besides, who wants to read a science manual? Except maybe some of you scientists. This story was written to explain the impossible and tell us the why of creation. Not the how of creation. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 139, 13, it says this. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? How are we to read this text? If we approach the text the same way we often approach Genesis chapter 1, we would have to create all kinds of interesting theories on how scientifically is done. Is God actually sitting inside a mother's womb with knitting needles? Knitting us together? I would say no. But the author's intent was not to convey that. To describe scientifically what is happening. Most of us who've had science at some point in our life, we can remember a little bit about the birds and the bees and how life is created and how cells multiply, but the author is not showing us that. The author's point is that God is intentionally creating you and he has designed you and you're beautiful and you have purpose. That's the why. So back to our creation story. There's a fourth theory that addresses the author's purpose and intent. And it's called the framework theory. Now this isn't a new theory. In fact, it was first articulated by Augustine back in the 4th century AD. That's the first uh, written record that we have of this theory. It could be uh, earlier than that, but that's just the earliest we have. And I like this theory because it basically states that the seven-day structure of Genesis chapter 1 which is indeed a literal week, was being used as a literary device to explain the purpose of creation. They're used as a framework in order for us to organize the structure of creation. This theory takes seriously the author's intent of creation. So let's look at this theory a little closer based on the structure of Genesis chapter 1. So if you go to that, hit one more. In day one, God creates light and darkness, day and night, right? Day one. Then it was morning and it was evening, day two. 
On day two, it says that God created the, the, the heavens above and, and below, the, the sky and the oceans. He says he separates the water from above, from the waters below. In the ancient world, uh, they believed in a firmament. And you read in some text the firmament, which was a barrier between uh, the sky and the waters that were above it. And you could open a window and the rains would come down. So in day two, you create these, this second habitat, the sky and the oceans. Now go to day three. In day three, God, it says that God created the earth and the plants. And in each of these days, what did God say? It was good. He saw that it was good. Now, day four goes back underneath. And in day four, God creates the sun and the moon. You know, from a scientific standpoint, how do you create light before you create a sun and moon? It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But that's not the intent. Again, in day four, he creates the sun and moon, which God says, the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. What happened on day one? He created the habitat of the day and the night. On day four, he created the sun and moon to rule those. On day five, he creates the birds and the fish. The birds to rule the sky, the fish to rule the ocean. We're going somewhere here. You see the framework? Day six, he creates the animals and humans. The animals to rule the earth and the humans to rule over all the animals. You see that framework there where day one, two, and three line up with day four, five, and six. You have in the first three days the created habitat. And in day four, five, and six, you have those creations that were designed to rule those habitats. So in day four, you have the sun and moon to rule the day and night. It says that language. In day five, you have the birds and fish to rule, the birds to rule the sky, the fish to rule the oceans. In day six, the animals and the humans to rule that habitat. And then in day 6b, it says this, that man and woman were created both to rule all of that. Not, not man, male. No, man and woman. To rule all of that. That was God's purpose and intent. This is going somewhere. And what does he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Right? This is going somewhere. And then we have day seven. It says God rests. Like a king who is looking out over his creation, his kingdom. He says, I'm in control of this. And now I'm resting. This world I created, it is good. And we see this purpose and this crescendo of creation as humanity has been designed to rule over all of creation and God rules over everything. This is the framework. And it ends with the Sabbath, with day seven. And everything has its place and its order in his kingdom. It is God-ordained. God is in control and he is sovereign. And God created us in his image to take care of and protect his kingdom. What a gift. This is God's great covenant with us. We're going to talk about covenant during these weeks as well. You can't understand the Bible without understanding covenant. This was God's plan for his creation. The people of God in the place of God, dwelling 
in the presence of God. Again, that's from Sandra Richter. The people of God and the place of God dwelling in the presence of God. That was his purpose. That was the why of creation. But let's dive even deeper into the story. This culmination with the Sabbath. What a beautiful picture. Now when did the people of God receive this gift of this creation story? Do you remember? When did God give this to the people? Who gave it to him? Moses. You remember the story? The people of God had been slaves in Egypt, right? They had been had no hope and they're now out in the wilderness after they have escaped the tyranny of Pharaoh. After they have escaped slavery and they're standing around Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to dwell with God and God gives Moses the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and, and Moses begins to write and tell these people who they are. And I want you to think about that. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert. Their whole life has been lived in slavery. Their parents' lives had been lived in slavery. Their grandparents' lives had been lived in slavery. Their great-grandparents' lives had been lived in slavery. Their great-great-grandparents' lives had been lived in slavery. Their whole existence was get up, Work for the master, be punished, the drudgery of everyday life, the monotony and purposelessness of life. They saw the loss of every firstborn male as they they were drowned in the Nile River. That was their everyday existence. Every day serving at their master's whim. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Is there a God out there? And the Egyptians and the Canaanite culture all around them They gave them answers to the questions of creation. They had their own stories. They all said that their only reason for existence was for God's, the God's amusement. That we are a byproduct of the various God's rage and folly. That creation was an accident. That our only reason for existence was to serve whatever God, the current ruler, saw fit to satisfy. But even beyond that, to satisfy their earthly master's pleasure. And then Moses comes down from the mountain with the covenant. And he tells the story of what really happened in creation to these former slaves wandering without purpose. And he tells them, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was order to it. And it was for a purpose. And it was good. And you were created In the image of God. And God desires to dwell with us. Not just now, but for all eternity. And that story ends with the Sabbath. And says, God rested. You've never experienced rest before. You've been slaves your entire life. You are no longer slaves. I'm giving you Sabbath. Rest. Rest. For slaves, rest was something they never heard before. He says, I'm a God who has created you for purpose, not for slavery. I'm a God who loves you and wants the best for you. And I'm giving you rest. And I'm commanding you to rest so you can learn what it means to not live as a slave, but to live as free men and women 
in my kingdom and to take care of it. Can you feel that? You know, God has created us for eternity, for a purpose. We know that. We know it deep within our gut, don't we? You have been designed for eternity. We see that in the creation story. To dwell with God for eternity. We know that at the core of our being, don't we? When someone we love dies, we ache, don't we? Because we know we have been designed for eternity. And death mars that. We ache for eternity. And in this great prelude to our faith, we are given a glimpse of eternity and the creation of the world and God's purpose and intent. This is the first bookend of our scripture. You know, we have another bookend in Revelation 21 and 22. You know what it says? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. See, the home of God is among mortals, just like he intended. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away and the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. What incredible bookends we have to our faith. Amen. God's intent in the creation story is to remind us of his purpose all along for us. To dwell with us. We are not an accident. We have been designed and created in God's image. We have been designed with purpose and passion and for eternity. Amen. Amen.